Hi, everybody. Um, I'm, my uh, job tonight is to do the introductions. Um, I'm Rhys McDonald from Milford Asset Management and delighted to be here supporting the Christchurch Word Festival. Fantastic event, day one today, and doing really, really well. So I'd encourage you all to keep supporting the Word. Um, tonight, I'm delighted to introduce two of New Zealand's great extreme athletes, um, Nathan Chiave and John Hallimans. And I'll give you a wee bit of uh, a bio that I've found on the internet in the last few days. <laughs> Don't panic. <laughs> um, I'll start off with Nathan. Nathan has been a professional adventure athlete for over 20 years, representing New Zealand at four different sports, attending 15 world championships, and competing in 28 different countries. He has an extraordinary record of captaining the New Zealand adventure racing team to five world championship victories. He's achieved all of this while also battling a persistent heart condition. He is the author of the book Adventurers at Heart, which was released in 2015. John Hallyman's passion for triathlon has led to more than three decades of adventures, both in New Zealand and on the international circuit. John has won six national titles, eight world masters titles, and he is the author of four books. In his latest book, which is titled Never Ever Give Up, he explores triathlon's enduring compulsive attraction. So I look forward to hearing more about that tonight. John also coaches at the Canterbury Triathlon Academy and advises New Zealand High Performance Programme. So I'd like you all to welcome them here tonight, and uh, I'm sure you're looking forward to it as much as I am. Welcome. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. So, we've had a session before this one, and we've been discussing what's going to happen with the next session. Are we going to do the same, or is it going to go a different way? Because we've sort of been um, not winging it, but we've been... <laughs> we've been we were winging it. We're, <laughs> we've, we've been imp improvising. Um, but... First of all, I want to say that we are really honoured to be at this particular conference because I mean, I love the written word and the writers who are here uh, presenting. I, I, some of them I really admire, and I can't wait for this to be over and for me to go to those other sessions yeah. for the next few days. Um, and but I'm also honoured to share this stage with Nathan. Um, because of who he is and what he's done, because it, it what he's done is. It's pretty amazing. I've just finished reading his book in preparation for tonight. And, um, <laughs> Likewise. I, <laughs> I, I couldn't find a lot of dirt on him in the book, so I rang his mates. I rang Steve Gurney and Christina Strode-Penny and, and Lisa and said, can you give me some dirt on this guy so I can have him on? But none of them would talk. <laughs> obviously, <laughs> obviously, what stays, you know, what's said in the team stays in the team. The grip of the mafia. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so um, when I was a boy, I always, I, I always wanted to be an adventurer, and I always read the books from the mountaineers and the explorers, and I was dreaming doing things like that. But I never really got to do true adventures. I had different challenges through my life, uh, which were a lot more uh, controlled, I suppose. But um, 
Nathan did the true thing, which I aspired to as a boy, but never quite had the courage or the ability probably to, to pursue. So um, I also worked out that Nathan and I are very different beasts, uh, different personalities, and that's probably one of the reasons why we sort of followed our different pathways and had different choices uh, in our competitive careers. Um, we've got a couple of things in common, and, and one is uh, a dicky heart, and, um, and secondly, we s tend to seek out suffering. And um, in, in the book I wrote, uh, Never Ever Give Up, there's a question mark behind Never Ever Give Up. Um, because I never quite have related to the suffering as much as what Nathan has. And perhaps we can talk about that a, a, a little bit later. But I'd like to start off with a, a couple of stories which um, probably emphasizes the differences between our personalities. And, and the first one is that uh, is, is on Saturday mornings during the summertime, um, some of the local triathletes, the younger triathletes, gather at the Scarborough Beach for a swim. And I'm the coach, and I usually join in with them. Um, so we generally use wetsuits because the water is cold these days. Um, so one Saturday morning, we were standing there preparing ourselves, putting our wetsuits on, and a, a six-year-old boy comes up to me, and his father sort of hesitantly followed. And the boy said, are you going for a swim? And I looked at him, and I said, well, what do you think? And um, he um, said, oh, you are going for a swim. And he said, where do you go? Where do you swim to? I s and I said, oh, South America. And uh, <laughs> as, soon, as soon as I said it, I knew I wasn't quite, you know, he wasn't at the right age to get that. <laughs> so he says, where is South America? And I said, and I pointed uh, towards the east. I said, well, you can't see it. It's a long way, and his eyes were like that. And his father just stood there shaking his head. <laughs> and um, I walked away, let his father sort out the mess. Um, and so we got on with our swim. And the second story is about Nathan um, needing to go to a meeting in, in Wellington. And I found out the meeting was actually with, 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 a, with a medical surgeon, but you, you can talk about <laughs> that. That doesn't matter so much. So he decided to go to the meeting in his kayak. He was going to kayak across Cook Strait from Nelson to Wellington to go to this meeting with his surgeon. And so he hopped uh, at daylight, in, uh, early daylight, into his kayak. And somebody walked past and said, hey, where are you going? And so this was a Nelson. And he said, Wellington. And this guy said, yeah, right. And uh, kept on, on his merry way. And so uh, Nathan Julie kayaked across Cook Strait and arrived on time at his meeting with the surgeon, who said, how was your flight? <laughs> and Nathan said, I didn't fly. Uh, oh, did you take the ferry? And Nathan knew he was in a hiding to nothing. So he said, sort of. Um, and, and so there's the differences between us. Um, so why did you go and see that surgeon? Oh, that was for a, um, I had nine uh, shoulder dislocations. So I was getting my shoulder basically um, rebuilt. But I was a bit worried I might not be able to kayak for a while. So I thought, oh, it'd be good to get one, one long paddle in <clears throat> before, the, uh, before the operation. So the pre-op, the surgeon was just kind of checking out my shoulder. He's like, man, your muscles are really tight. And he was like, I was like, I don't know. I can't. 
can't explain that. But I've actually got a, a, a um, I've had a few Cook Strait adventures, but I got another classic one. Who, who here read my book? You can be honest. There's a few of you. Okay, that's good. There's not too many of you. But um, <laughs> I'll try and condense the story. So there was there was this um, some years ago. There was there was a, a, actually a blind, um, legally blind woman, Nilu, and she'd done the coast to coast. And she just randomly rang me up one day. She said, "I want to kite the Cook Strait, and people have said that I need to talk to you." And I was like. Yeah, it's probably not bad advice. I said, um, she said, the one catch is, is that I'm legally blind and I'm not a kayaker. I said, okay, there's a couple that, that, that um, presents some kind of... Presents. I would say that's an advantage. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> so I was like, um, I, admired her, I admired her ringing me uh, and just basically just kind of putting it out there and I kind of thought, oh, why not give it... Oh, that, that sounds like a pretty crazy thing to do. Let's do it. So... Um, so I've done, I've actually done, I think now, seven or eight Cook Strait crossings. I've never done it with a safety boat. And um, we're just basically getting our kayaks and go and do it, to keep it nice and simple. And, As you uh, do. And I thought, I thought, all right, I'm taking this, um, this blind woman across the Cook Strait. It's probably pay to go through the right channels. So I thought, oh, I'll ring the Coast Guard and pick them and just kind of let them know what's going on. So I rang them up and I said, oh, look, I'm, um, I'm planning on planning the Cook Strait uh, probably next weekend or the weekend after, um, just, you know, maybe set up some radio skids or something. And they were like, oh, yep, yep, yeah, that's a good idea. When are you planning to leave? And I was like, oh, on Friday night. We'll probably paddle out to the heads on Friday night from Picton and then we'll cross on Saturday. They go, oh, Friday night. Mm, I'm not sure if that's a good time to go. That's, um, you know, will you be paddling at night? And I was like, yeah, yeah, we'll just paddle down Tory Channel at night. That's, um, done, oh, I've done it before, you know. They go, well, it's kind of a shipping lane. I don't know if that's a very good idea. And I was like, oh, no, it's all right. We'll have lights on and we'll stay out of the way of the ships and stuff, you know. And they're like, oh, yeah, okay. They're getting a bit less keen. And they said, so what's your plan? And I said, oh, we'll just, you know, we'll just camp out there and then we'll paddle across the Cook Strait the next day. Oh, okay, who are you going with? I said, oh, I'm actually taking this woman who's blind. And, um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, she's not really a quacker, but she's pretty keen to go across. So they're like, oh, actually, um, that, so have you got a safety boat going with you? And I was like, um, no, no. And they go, oh, look, you're really going to need a safety boat to go across there, you know, if you're going to do that. And... Um, and then I was like, oh, no, no, I think, no, we'll be right. We'll just, you know, we'll be sensible. And they were like, oh, no, we're not really happy about this trip. And so they were like, so when, when exactly are you going? And I was like, no, actually, we're not going to do it now. <laughs> uh, no, 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 actually, no, no, I'll just, no, we're not going to do it now. So no, 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 just forget this conversation that happened. So, yeah, it was a good trip. <laughs> you know, if I had been a surgeon, and if he would told me he would just have kayaked across uh, from uh, Cook Strait and he had saw me for this sore shoulder, I told him to F off and, <laughs> and just toughen up. He didn't need any surgery. But you, yeah. did, you did have um, reoccurring dislocations. And I got that from his book that he, he had injuries and including a shoulder which would pop out at uh, unconventional times. And, uh, and, and he would have to deal with it and I try and get it back in, you know, during events and other injuries as well. And I, that's what I've learned over time that athletes tend to do this. They tend to ignore their injuries as much as they can for as long as they can because it interferes with their ambitions. <laughs> and, um, and so that's, been a, that's also where my question mark comes from, you know, and some athletes have to, this tendency more than, than others and in particular, in the endurance sport, the extreme endurance sport, um, you see that quite a lot. So th they are different species in, in my eyes, you know, those, those multi-day events. 
Um, so we talked about having a hard issue in common. And um, Nathan, perhaps you can uh, tell us a bit about it yourself, but he raced with his irregular heart for many, many years before he did anything about it, you know, much to the detriment of his performances at times. So can you just tell us what, what happened there mm. and how you dealt with that? Yeah, it's quite, it's quite interesting, just what John sort of said um, just a bit earlier as well, that um, the athletes often ignore their, you know, the, I guess your injuries and, and those things, because they are, they are sort of inconveniences, really. And, um, it, it, like, I... For, for a number of years, people would say to me, up until quite recently, they'd say, you know, they'd sort of know a little bit about the sport I did and what, what I've done as a career, because my, my actual working career has been in adventure guiding and, and outdoor education. And people say, oh, have you got any injuries? You know, have you got any injuries from that? And, and I would say with absolute kind of sincerity and honesty, I would say, no. No, I've been pretty much injury-free. And then they'd go, oh, really? Tell, really? And I'd go, well... I have had three heart surgeries. I did dislocate my shoulder nine times. Um, you know, I've torn this off and done that and done that. But you do, you actually, you actually kind of brush those things off or ignore them or conveniently try and forget about them. But yeah, they're just kind of little, little blimps in the road, really. But I guess, um, you know, with my heart condition, um, and some of, you, some of you here have probably, probably got it, or I'm sure you all know people with it. So I had atrial fibrillation, which was John... Um, can suffer from as well. And it was probably made most famous in New Zealand sport by Rob Waddell, the rower. But uh, yeah, I was, I was diagnosed with it in 1999. Um, I basically collapsed in an adventure race. It was actually my first adventure race, a multi-day adventure race. Um, and uh, one of my teammates actually <laughs> took my pulse and was like, oh, this is not normal. Uh, and, 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 you know, I sort of went and got it checked out. But looking back, I'd actually had that condition for quite some time, probably probably 10 years. But the incidents of the atrial fibrillation attacks, I suppose you would call them, were so um, infrequent uh, and so random that I would just sort of essentially just, what John was sort of alluding to, just sort of block it out and go, oh, you know, I didn't get enough sleep this week or I'm racing at altitude or, you know, I've drunk too much coffee or whatever it may be and then you sort of forget about it and just sort of go back to normal and then time would go by. So, but yeah, 1999, it was like, okay, you've, I got diagnosed, you've got this problem, um, this condition. Um, and uh, and at, at the time, you know, when you're doing a multi-day adventure race, like a non-stop race, which is three or four or five days long, um, you're racing for, you know, you could be racing up for, to 100 hours with very little, you know, maybe only stopping for one or two two hours a day. And then you develop a heart condition. You know, most people will go, well, what did you expect? <laughs> it's like, well, what's so puzzling about that? But, um, but I guess, you know, it's, uh, there's enough of people going out there doing, the, you know, endurance sport without those problems to go, okay, well, you know, we can probably try and do something about it. So yeah, cut a long story short, I will condense it, is um, yeah, for a number of years, I was in and out of hospital with different medications. I've had three surgical procedures to my heart. The first one didn't work. The last two have been successful. My condition actually came back. So I had a, number, a, a few years of good racing and then, it, um, and then it came back. But I guess one of the big challenges for me um, when I think of my, my sort of heart condition was is that I first became really apparent, well, Parents, not the word, um, you know, if, uh, that it became official that I had this condition. I had all the data and, and evidence to say this is what you've got, was right at the time when I had the biggest opportunities to basically be go, go professional in the sport that I, was, that I wanted to at. So, 
so it was it was pretty it was pretty hard it was like um you know i had this this kind of massive barrier to my training and racing but also this really big opportunity that i wanted to wanted to sort of take on well for me it was interesting to read about his symptoms while he was racing not quite aware of what was going on at the early states and he would actually finish the race you know he wouldn't finish very well but he would finish it and with a condition that normally people cannot go any further you know when you had some fibrillation it just doesn't function so um it must have taken tremendous willpower um and foolishness to actually carry <laughs> on and and i normally with those irregular heartbeats in endurance athletes it happens a bit later in in their career like it happened to me so endurance athletes who perhaps push themselves reasonably hard over many many years are more at risk to ve to develop hard arrhythmias um so i was always quite happy that i avoided it till one day in 2013 when i did a uh, cross country race where the qe2 sports stadium was and it was a, a running race cross country and it was an emotional time for me because a qe2 is the place where i worked for many many years i had a clinic there called active health and it was the place where i worked and where i trained and i got really attached to it and then it after the earthquake it it disappeared and so when i turned up there for that cross-country race it was quite emotional because the ruins were still there and there we were going to run around there and between there and so i had to deal with it for a starter and then the race and then but i had to obviously uh, have some business to attend to so i we we went along with the race and and the first k went all right and then i thought oh, i'll go and step it up a bit and boof i got a, like a tight band around my chest and i couldn't breathe and my first thought oh blown a gasket you know as you do and so i slowed down a bit and you'll come right and i slowed down and i didn't come right and i got dizzy and i thought well there's something not right i have to stop and and see what's happening as it was um over the years um i need to tell you over the years my family has sort of become less interested in going to the events where I take part in. And I can't blame them, really, because it's sometimes a bit of a sorry sight to see those geriatric brigades um, crawling around the course, um, still very ambitious, but not quite having yeah. the physique or the technique to look the bit. But this particular day, who turns up? My wife with my two granddaughters, Oshi and Lakey. Oshi was six and Lakey was three. And I could hear them yelling from far away, come on, Opa. Opa is the Dutch word for grandfather. Come on, Opa. And I thought, oh, shit. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so in particular, because Osi, the oldest, had a cross-country race from her primary school uh, the week before. And before the race, she said, I don't want to do it. I was, going, I was there to have a look at how she was doing. She said, I'm not going to do it. So I had a stiff talking to her, and I, <laughs> as you do. And, and I said, you, you just do it, and, and you'll enjoy it. Um, and uh, make sure you, you don't give up. You know, you don't stop. You keep running. <laughs> and so here I was with this dilemma. Um, and, and Oshi sort of ran, or ran very easily next to me and chatting <clears throat> away. And little Lakey was waving at the wrong person because we, <laughs> we, we all looked the same. 
to here. And I, I struggled around the course, finished dead last, and O.C. was a bit puzzled, and I was standing bent over, dripping with sweat, and she said, Opa, you're all wet. Have you been running through rivers or something? <laughs> and I said, no, O.C., that is the stuff you produce when you work really hard. And she danced away. And so I ended up <clears throat> in the hospital and with that first episode. Um, so I've, I've been, I've always obviously having a sports medicine uh, background, I've always been interested in those type of cases, and, and I had some involvement with you at some states as mm -hmm. well. Um, and I sort of was a bit pissed off with the whole thing because I, as doctors do, they don't think that those things happen to them. It only mm -hmm. happens to their patients. Mm -hmm. um, so I studied up a, a little bit more about it. So in, indeed, endurance athletes have a lot more chance but there's other factors which play a role as well. It's not just the exercise. It's also some of the stress which comes with it, uh, emotional stuff. And in, in this case, I was reasonably emotional in, in this particular occurrence. Um, and our lifestyles, you know, what, what, what we, in particular, our nutrition. And also there's now, we now know there's a strong correlation between alcohol intake and arrhythmias. And that's only really been recently discovered in the last decade or so that the um, relationship is probably a lot stronger than what we thought. And, you know, most of us have regular alcohol and in combination with endurance exercise is certainly not good. But it's also one of the reasons why, you know, older people are more susceptible for developing uh, arrhythmia. So lifestyle has a lot to do with it as well. So when, mm. when we were discussing arrhythmias before, what... What we said uh, in our first talk earlier on, uh, we, you know, people can, you know, can ask us questions. And so at the end of the session, there was a whole lot of questions coming forward and we were running out of time. Um, and so perhaps we thought this time we need, mm. if you feel you have a question about a certain topic what we're talking about or a comment or a query, then just put up your hand and, and ask it now. So this is your chance to have a free consultation. <laughs> so arrhythmia, is it genetics or is it, a is it a resulting condition of what you've been doing? Um, yeah, I, yes, I did hear that. Yes, yes. So I think in, mo it, mo yeah. in most cases, our lifestyle has a, a big influence on arrhythmia. But there is some genetic, uh, you know, like with everything, every illness, there is a genetic component. Um, so, but the lifestyle triggers it. Um, so, if, if your lifestyle is good, for example, um, you know, we are probably on the extreme end of, of exercise, the way we apply ourselves to exercise. And to that, there are certain risks involved. We know that overall, regular exercise is, has a lot of health benefits. You know, there's no doubt about it. And we should prescribe it a lot more in, in the medical world because it's good for so many things. But it's good when you, when you sit in the middle. So when you exercise an hour a day, it's aerobic, it's controlled, so you don't go to the extremes. And you know, we've been reasonably extreme, not only with the distances which we do, but also the intensity we exercise with. And then, and then there's certain risks involved. And there's even more risks if you are totally on the other end of the scale and you don't exercise at all. You know, that's a very significant risk. So I decided at some stage that, well, I enjoy what I'm doing. I accept that there will be some risks. You know, it's a bit like 
riding your bike these days is bloody dangerous. But, yes. you, you know, but you accept <laughs> that you're going to take the risk that you might well be killed by a truck. <laughs> but um, you try and minimize that risk by choosing safe routes and things like that. So also because of my coaching background, to me this has been an important part of my coaching to teach younger kids who come to the ranks about their risks and the way they go about their training so they do it as safely as possible. Mm. Um, so w w when I read Nathan's book and how he went about it, and especially when at a young age it was all or nothing, you know, you were a bit of a bad boy when you grew up, and there was oh, a quite a bit of... <laughs> oh, come on, admit it. Um, um, so, um, and you did drink quite a bit. Um, you know, you, you probably want to tell us the story, how that all evolved and, and where you turned mm. around. Yeah, I, I guess... Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I would sort of look back, and I, I think I mentioned in my book that I, I just considered myself always to be adventurous, and uh, my parents, I'm sure, would, would agree with that as well. And I think, I think just an adventure, adventurous, curious kid, um, you know, I, and I had a lot of energy as well, that, um, that I just, for a few years, I just got a, I guess I just went off down a bit of a wrong track. And it's interesting you talk about alcohol being a contributing factor for, um, for, for, um, you know, heart conditions, atrial fibrillation, because I actually haven't drank alcohol since I was 16. But I think my problem lies is between that between 13 and 16, I basically drank my sort of quota. <laughs> so, uh, and that is why I basically haven't drunk since. So I was sort of more sort of shock loaded the system, I guess, with that. But, um, but yeah, I, I mean, I wasn't, I wouldn't say I was bad. I definitely got up to a bit of mischief. And, uh, but I think it was largely just that I, um, you know, I just, I, I, it's sort of thrill-seeking and sort of highs and and um, I guess exploration in a lot of ways. And I just I just needed that channeled. So I actually, when I was sixteen, I was out of school, was out of home. Um, I was in a little bit of trouble, and I wasn't that happy. It was probably one of the significant things that was going on in my life. And then I was lucky enough to find myself on a at-risk outdoor adventure program for youth, for essentially for at-risk youth. Um, I was 16 years old, and that course really was uh, a really significant time for me. I mean, I, I think the big life-changing experience for me there was is that I actually went into that course knowing that something had to change. Like, the path I was on was not sustainable. I was smart enough to know that this is not, <laughs> this is not a healthy pathway to be on for life. So I had to change somehow. And, uh, and that was a huge turning point for me. I think the, a few things happened. One is I, I gave up drinking um, alcohol. I was, I was a cigarette smoker as well. I stopped smoking cigarettes. A couple of years after that, I stopped taking drugs. And uh, <laughs> a couple of years after that, I stopped growing drugs. Um, <laughs> Ten years after that, I, no, just kidding. And, um, and I, but I got into regular exercise. But the other really big thing was I actually saw it out. I actually saw a career path for myself. Like up, up until then, I didn't. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I was a good student at school. Like I was. I, I went through school fine. I was, you know, I do my work and do what was required. But um, I saw the outdoor instructors and sort of thought, man, they have got the most amazing job. You know, they just take these boys, which I was one of. Um, you know, they go kayaking, they go rock climbing, they do these things. And uh, some years later, I actually went full circle, and I actually was the tutor on that very outdoor um, adventure program for youth at risk and realised that it wasn't quite the job that I expected because you've got these 12 naughty, unmotivated <laughs> boys that are like constantly breaking the rules and getting into trouble. 
it's just like, oh my goodness, um, some of the stuff they got up to. But, um, but at least it wasn't a major surprise to me. But uh, yeah, I, I think, um, you know, that was, I just needed that channeling. And I, as a result of that course, I went back to school, finished my education. I started university, but got distracted there for a number of different things, uh, mainly by sport, actually. And um, it went on. But the heart condition was an interesting one because I remember when I first, and I was event racing at the time, and, and, and I'm, I'm picking, some of you will know about event racing, some of you know a lot more than others, but, you know, it is a multi-day event. Um, the races can be, can literally be up to a week long. Uh, you might be, you, you, if you stop two hours a day, you're lucky. A lot of the countries we race in, we, we just survive on junk food because that's the only food we can get. Um, you know, it's, it's racing, it can be a high-pressure environment. And in, when I actually read through the stuff, and I remember sitting in hospital reading about atrial fib, you know, I was hooked up to all these wires and stuff, and, and it was like, you know, the doctor or the nurse sort of said, oh, look, you want to have a read through this, and these are some guidelines, you know, to kind of just, you know, so this won't happen again. And it was kind of like, you know, avoid kind of excess, um, you know, excessive amounts of exercise, make sure you get plenty of sleep, make sure you diet, you got a good diet, you know, stay away from high-stress environments. I was thinking... They're sort of explaining adventure racing. Yeah. <laughs> I was just like, oh, this is not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, so the other thing we have in common is the suffering, but I, I want to wait with that a little bit. Uh, I'd, I'd, your, your book came out in 2015, and um, I, I want to know what you've done in the last three years, because the book finished very mildly where he's t- taking his family out to adventures. There's still huge adventures. But he was going to give up on his uh, competitive career and settle down. So what's happened in the last couple of years? Yeah, I, I settled down for um, a couple of weeks. <laughs> uh, no, I did have all intentions of... Um, the book for me in some ways was a closure, actually. I wrote, part of the reason why I wrote the book and published it when I did was actually a closure for that part of my life. and. Was kind of going on to new things, but it, but it was you know it was actually quite unsuccessful that um, that closure, and I ended up uh, I've done two adventure racing world championships since since then, and since since my book came out, which I, I sort of sort of said in that book that that was me done and I was going to move on and do other things, but um, yeah for various reasons you kind of get dragged um, back into it or choose to go back into it or whatever it may be, but. Uh, yeah, I've done two um, two more world champs. Last year, I actually didn't race. I took a year off, and again, I wasn't sure if I'd race again. I actually had a um, some sort of minor um, knee tidy up in my knee last year, and that sort of took me out of out of racing anyway. But I'm I'm actually back training at the moment for for the world the interesting world champs this year. So um, yeah, so not a lot's changed really. Um, <laughs> Yeah, lots of lots of ventures with the family and a few sort of business things going on. Um, some of you uh, would have heard or done the spring challenge. That keeps my wife and I pretty busy at, at certain times of the year. And, uh, yeah, a little yeah. bit of racing. So. You've got some uh, interesting slides on your last adventure. I wonder if you want to oh, yeah, um, yeah. talk to that and, yep. and show us. Yeah, so um, I can, we can um, have a little bit of a, a short break and I'll show you a few images. So uh, a couple of things I'll say to these slides is that John actually too did have a, um, a slideshow, but we're running Mac here and he's on PC, so we're only going to see mine. <laughs> um, hence why um, it's got my name up there. I really should have said you know, Nathan and John Adventures or something, but, but um, John's is not working, so we're just going to have to be stuck with mine. So um, I was going to go through a few, uh, just a few of the images and t- just tell you a little bit more about event racing. The, o- the other thing I'll, I'll, I'll say um, 
just about my events racing achievements is, is that uh, I, I've done throughout my sporting career, half of it's been individual sport, um, whether it be paddling, mountain biking, cycling. Uh, I've done a tiny bit of triathlon, um, done quite a lot of multi-sport. But event racing, the, um, the sport that I guess I've been most kind of successful at or sort of been professional at is a team sport. So my successes are really um, shared successes from, from that with my team. So uh, event racing is a four-person team. Some of you may all know this stuff, but some of you won't. So I'll just quickly go through it. Uh, it's a four-person team. It's, um, it's a mixed-gender team. So the ruling is and for event racing that um, you must have one person of the opposite gender. So what that normally means at the professional level is three guys, three men, and one woman. But that's not always the case. And um, you see different combinations turning up for different events that we go to. Uh, I've actually done race, one race with two men and two women, and I did a race once with, with three women and myself, which is actually a really nice um, team environment to be in. <laughs> Uh, but what's probably what's worth noting in, uh, in that is, is that um, we won, I won all those, the teams won all those races. So even when I was racing in a normal event racing field with three women and myself, we still won the race. So it's probably a sport, I think, and especially when you get to the, the, the bigger um, endurance events, um, the longer races in event racing, where gender really doesn't make any difference. You know, usually the first 24 hours of a race are pretty intense, and most of my female teammates will say that's not much fun. But after that, it's just four people out there on course, and um, it doesn't matter what gender you are. Everyone has highs and lows, and everyone's got strengths and weaknesses. So, the research shows that uh, males and females, um, the longer the distance is, the closer their performance becomes. And there's this question marks: Will women surpass the males if you make it long enough? And that's <laughs> that hasn't been answered yet. But so, and that's my experience, and I was going to ask Nathan, uh, are females more reliable um, and endure better and, and longer than males when you do those ultra events? In your, what, what do you think? Yeah, it's a, it's, um, I think so. It's a little bit tricky because I, I, I was talking about John, with John about this <clears throat> a bit earlier as well, is that um, the one thing that probably sways it a bit at the moment is, is that, <clears throat> like I said, most teams are three guys and one female. So what tends to happen when people are putting teams together is they want an exceptional female because you only got one female on the team. So the females that I've raced with, I've been lucky enough to race really with, with the world's best, um, some of the world's best female event racers on the planet. And um, so they are exceptional. So, you know, if you're, if you're sort of playing that schoolyard game of pick your team, you know, <laughs> of you, 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 you know, how that works, um, you know, I could honestly say that um, that regardless of of gender, I would be picking the females that I've raced with. Um, you know, probably second to the top navigators. So you'd be, you'd be going for a good, the best navigator first, and then you'd be going for the best female. But surely um, the the males in those teams are exceptional as well in my books. So. Um, yeah, I think, I think the thing is, though, the males can sort of hide a bit. So there's a bigger pool of male athletes. There's more yeah. opportunities for the males to, to join teams. So I guess for a male athlete, because there's, you know, there's, they make up 75% of the teams, that if you can't get in that team, you can probably get in that team. Yeah. Whereas I think for the top woman, there's opportunities. That are, there's not, you know, they're, more, they're competing more for those spots. So I think it just forces them to be, to be more on their game and, and to probably to perform higher. Like... I, you know, I captain the teams that I've raced in for most of my career, and I think that the guys, the the the, the women, probably value their spots in the team a bit more. 
they sort of know that if they don't perform, then they might get subbed out for another female, whereas the guys tend to be a little bit more, you know, well, if I'm not in this team, I can be in another team. Yeah. I'm not really too worried. So it's, yeah, it's interesting. I'm, I'm totally happy to take questions or uh, as we go through this, but... Did everyone hear that question? Yeah, um, I think I think it's just the nature of the racing that um, the first part of the race, everyone's fresh. You know, you've basically trained for this race, you've tapered, you're well rested, you're well fed. You basically, if you're going to go fast at any stage of a race, it's going to be at the start. Well, certainly in an, event, in an adventure race, I mean, because we're multi-day. Um, it's not like you can go... Well, let's start slow for three days and then go really fast for the last three days because basically after three days everyone's exhausted. So <laughs> it's just sort of walking wounded. Um, so uh, <laughs> it's a survival of the fittest, it really is. But um, so I think I think um, and, and that's where and, and John will probably back this up with science is that the you know men tend to have um, the more explosive sort of power and are capable of carrying you know just that more higher intensity sort of stuff um, racing I should say. Um, so yeah, the first day, you know, it's almost. I mean, and and, and I'll, I'll I'll be honest, the woman that I've raced with will say, you know, it's, it's the first day is not that fun because all the boys are going to blow off all their steam, you know. But after that, they're all buggered, <laughs> and then they can sort of settle down. And the woman and the team go, okay, now boys, you know, have some food, have some drink, you'll feel better <laughs> tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure how we, how would you, did you hear the question? Yeah. Well, so I don't quite understand what you mean. Um, well, so change the rules as in what way? Energy can't, can't dominate. It can't, doesn't have an opportunity. So you, you make it so that they can't be explosive or, or disadvantage the women. I so know you just, can't do it, but I'm saying, you know what I mean? Yeah, I'm not quite sure how you do it, but I think, no, I think, um, one, there is a lot of talk about making it just gender equality in adventure racing, because it's an interesting thing where that gender came from, is, is that adventure racing was started by the French in 1989, and they actually did a survey of people doing adventure sport in France at the time, and basically, and basically discovered that 75% of the people doing adventure sport in France at the time were men, 25% were women, so they were like, oh, well, we'll make an adventure racing team reflective of who's actually out there doing this stuff. Whereas I'm pretty sure now if you did a survey, you'd probably find it would, well, I'd hope, you'd find that it would be sort of equal mix. So there is some talk of changing that. But um, interesting points. I'll have to think a bit more about what you were saying. But um, <clears throat> I like these, I like a couple of photos here just to sort of show the different contrasts of where we can um, sort of be racing. So um, similar to John, I just, just, just finished um, John's book, um, Never Ever Give Up, um, just today. It's a, it's a great, great read. I really enjoyed it. Uh, but one thing I notice is a lot of commonalities between what we do and what John does and what the triathletes do is in terms of travelling around the world. So we have an event racing world series like most sports. Um, there's a number of different events. And to keep a high world ranking, um, you need to be doing three to four of these races per year. This is if you're going for like a top world ranking. So that's what we would typically do. We'd, we've actually had the luxury the last few years of, of having um, maximum points, our team. So we haven't had to do as, much, as many races. But... The year generally starts with us um, when we're racing is we, we basically look at the calendar, where the races are, what dates they are, and where the world champs are, and then we would essentially just plan a year that would complement the world champs. So if we're racing and the world champs are somewhere sort of in the tropical with lots of bugs, then we would probably do races that kind of conditioned us for that sort of racing. 
We'd also just look at timing. Like for me, for example, um, I'm really busy in the school holidays with my kids, so any races that fell in the um, New Zealand school holidays were out for me. Um, it was just a bit of a family rule. And then other teammates have sort of got work commitments and different things. So by the end of it, we'd actually narrow it down to just a couple of races anyway. And then sometimes it would just be as simple as looking at where the races were that were interesting places to go. So sometimes we'd just send a few emails around the team and say, hey, look, there's a race in you know, somewhere crazy in Ecuador or somewhere. Who's been there before? And it was like, no, everyone's like, no, no, it'd be great. Let's go there and um, check that out. So that's kind of how the sort of racing would work. But I just want to um, talk you through uh, real quick just a couple of slides from a race I did in 2015. This was in the Pantanal in Brazil, a big, big, um, big wetland area just south of the Amazon. Turns out Pantanal is the Portuguese word for swamp. So, um, and that's pretty much what it is. It's a, it's a tropical wetland. So every race we go to, there's a safety briefing, as you can imagine. Some countries um, have less health and safety than others, but um, in, in a lot of countries we go to, we, we have a wildlife briefing. And it might be if we're racing where there's a lot of bears, they'll kind of you know, give us cans of mace or whatever, say this is what you do if a bear chases you. Um, we might go somewhere else and say, look, you know, this is, these are the hazards here. I think we, this year the World Champs are Reunion Island. I imagine we're going to get a shark briefing. So, um, but here at Pantanal, um, the, this is, this is the, the wildlife briefing from the race director, Shuby. So we're sitting in a room not too dissimilar to this. And um, she basically says, look, in a couple of days' time, you're going out into the Pantanal. Here's a couple of things I want you to think about. She says, right. <clears throat> so the Pantanal is the world's um, biggest concentration of um, alligators. So it wasn't a matter of are you going to see an alligator or two. It's like you are basically going to be living with alligators for a number of days. So, um, and she said, look, they're, they're, they're pretty harmless. Like, um, if, don't be in, try not to be in the water with them. But, um, but, but, <laughs> but generally, they'll move away from you. And as long as you don't be silly and go and provoke them, you'll be fine. Like, like most things in the wild. We did have one um, really quite comical night, I think it was about the third night, um, I was with um, our lead navigator, Chris Vaughan, um, he's your son-in-law, I believe, and, uh, and Chris and I were, we were conferring about the map, and um, we were standing waist deep in water, and um, I was looking at the map, and we had the headlights on, and we were sort of looking at the map, and Chris was going, I think we should go here, I'm going, yep, yeah, that makes sense, yeah, well, maybe, maybe look, we should try and head up to this part of the map, and then I actually said to Chris, I said, like, don't, don't, don't move quickly, but there's actually an alligator by your left arm. <laughs> and it was like something out of a um, Gary Larson cartoon where Chris is holding the map and I'm looking at it here and there's an alligator looking across going... <laughs> I know these waters, guys. <laughs> so uh, it, was pretty, it was pretty funny. It was, it was a pretty comical moment. But she'd also on the water's piranhas. Um, she said, it's a really good idea not to go into the water if you're bleeding because um, the piranhas will probably be harmless, but... Don't tempt, don't tempt them, you know, like they are, they are just, they are piranhas at the end of the day. So, um, but we, we saw like hundreds of piranhas and um, we were, we, you know, they were swimming around us as we were walking through these waterways. We spent a lot of time walking in, in water um, in this race, largely because it hadn't drained away like they thought it would. Um, she was, the race director Shibby was really, really happy to tell us that there's only green and yellow anacondas in the Pantanal, which is apparently really, really good news. Uh, Sounds like in the Amazon, that's where the black and red anacondas are, and they're the ones that are really nasty. So she was like, um, the anacondas should be fine. Um, you know, there's no black and red ones, so best of luck. We never actually saw any, but we saw where they'd been, and they are definitely a pretty big snake. Um, stingrays, they are actually um, what the local people do. There's not many local people live in Pantanal, but that is actually the thing that the locals fear the most. And I guess it's one of those things that's most likely to happen, and it's probably not going to take your life, but it could really ruin your day or ruin your race. 
um, Chris, my uh, lead navigator, actually did stand on a stand on a stingray and um, had a, you know a bit of blood and a bit of a cut for a while. But we just we just stopped for a few hours and, and he was good he was good as gold after that. So um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which which I guess sort of goes a lot for the sort of type of sport we're in. You know, like I remember when it happened, there was a sort of big kerfuffle. It was at night and there was water splashing everywhere and a lot of swear words going on. And then it's just like, what's happened? I got you know, stung by a thing where I was like, okay, well, you know, let's just kind of take a break and, you know, you'll be right. <laughs> the, um, the other thing that's in there, and this was a little bit, little bit spooky, she said, um, the Pantanal is actually the highest concentration of Jaguar. She said, um, yeah, there's a couple of things you need to know about the Jaguar is, is that, uh, and, and the best thing you can do is not be by yourself at night in, in the jungle, you know, um, she said, because you'll just be really easy prey. Stay together as a teammate, plenty of noise. Because the thing with the jaguar is, is that they, um, the, the, they are the fastest land creature on the planet, or one of. Um, so you'll never outrun a jaguar. She said they, um, they can also see in the dark, and they can climb trees. <laughs> so, <laughs> in a really nice sort of way, she said, there is no escaping a jaguar, which I took to mean don't be the last person in your team. <laughs> <laughs> so so there, was, there was definitely a few times at night in the jungle where there was definitely a bit of a unspoken kind of fight not to be the last person. So oh, I just want to, go, I want to go up and have a look at the map. Um, a couple of other things out there, these capybara things, the main thing, they, they're, they're harmless, they just wander out eating grass, but they, see, they're out at night time, so just be careful you don't trip over them. And, um, and howler monkeys, um, they can give you a real big fright because they're so, they're so loud. So apparently they have the same output of a, um, of a Boeing jet engine and they can be heard from about 10 k's away. And honestly, when we heard them for the first time in the Pantanal, I actually, my initial thing was we're lost because we were just walking along on this sort of grassy plain, there was a forest there, and next thing you could just hear this like big industrial factory on the other <laughs> side of the trees. And I was like, how can we be, what's happened here? And then we realized, it was like, okay, click, it's the hello monkeys are, um, are yelling, so pretty impressive. And um, the last thing was is that she just best be real careful of the wandering spiders. Um, there's a lot of them out there. And in adventure racing, we just, if we stop and sleep, we often, and especially in the tropics, we don't put tents up. We, don't, we just basically lie down on the trail and go to sleep. See, there's a lot of wandering spiders around. They're called wandering spiders because they wander. And um, if you're sleeping on the track, you know, they said that that'll be a nice place for a spider to come and nest for a while. And then, you know, you could have a bit of a disagreement if you kind of roll over on the spider and stuff. So we saw, we saw heaps of wandering spiders. They, they're just kind of cruising around on the, on the forest floor at night. You see their little red eyes kind of. But, um, but they're, they're good guys. Are they poisonous? Uh, yeah, they, yeah, they are. They're really dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> um, Size-wise, apparent, uh, we, the ones we saw about that big, but apparently they, they're dinner plate. They go up to dinner plate, dinner plate sort of sizes. So... Um, so yeah, for anyone who wants to do adventure racing, I'll be taking. Um, <laughs> and that's just that's just a, a, an aerial shot of to give you an idea. We basically spent a week just kind of traversing this kind of this sort of wetland, and it was a um, it was an amazing experience. Uh, at the time, I wasn't always thinking that, but um, one of the reasons why we spent so much time in water is it, it is a tropical wetland, and that year it had been a particularly wet summer or wet season, and it just hadn't dried away. So the race directors were. They thought, um, you know, well, they thought it'd be a lot drier, but it was actually a lot wetter. So, it's one of those things. So, <clears throat> this is exactly the reason why I've never been tempted to take up <laughs> adventure, <laughs> adventure racing. Um, so you can see, you know, that you need to have a certain personality to be attracted to this type of sporting event. 
Um, I've, I've always sort of excelled at the shorter distances between one and two hour type of events. And um, I always, always wanted to know where I was going. Um, <laughs> so I needed Combs and Marshall and Esfelds <laughs> and Arrows. Um, and that's where I was comfortable. And so I, I did have this itch that those adventurers, their heroes, I want to do something like that. So I've done a, a few events which put me totally out of my comfort zone. And yeah, they, they included a couple of Ironman events. Um, I don't do distance very well. I say up to a couple of hours and then I'm really bored and my body wants to stop and is hungry and things like that. <laughs> so, but I also done multi-day adventure races, the My Zone Length of New Zealand multi-sport race. I was way out of my depth there. Um, and I don't know how I got, to, well, I got through it by trying to stick desperately to people who no, knew what they were doing. You know, it was a state race. So uh, most of it was off-road. I, I don't do off-road very well. <laughs> um, so, and I'm not technically very good in particular. So it was a real challenge to keep up when we had a mountain bike bunch, to keep up with the bunch. And I was absolutely desperate, hang off the back. But I kept up because um, it was, it, it, I had to keep up because I knew I would be dead if I couldn't mm. keep up. It was a survival type of thing. Um, so I did that, and I did recently, which I, I did the length of New Zealand uh, mountain bike uh, tour, the tour at Teoroa, and I thought I should be able to do that. It's not a race, it's an event, and it's about 100K a day for 30 days. I'm a roadie, and 100K is nothing for a road mm. cyclist. But I didn't count on that you have to carry all your own luggage, <laughs> and, and that you, you have to be completely self-sufficient, and most of it is off-road. And it's not just gravel roads, it's mountain bike trails and beaches and things like that. So you go, if you're lucky, you do between 10 and 15 k's an hour. So you mean it's not what I thought, just doing some biking in the morning and having a coffee and then <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> arriving at your destination at, at 2 o'clock and having the afternoon nap and then go to the cinema at night and then carry on the next day. <laughs> So it became an absolute ordeal also because I had issues to deal with. I lost my mate after three days. He had the same heart condition I had, but it was quite acute, so he had to quit. Suddenly, I totally relied on him because he was the navigator, and he owed all the equipment, and he know, knew where we were going. And I'm not very good at navigating, and I lost him on the, just the day before we had to navigate ourselves through Auckland. And so you needed your GPS to get through Auckland. It was very complex. And um, I, I remember going over the same bridge three times in, in, in a row. Um, and then I got shingles and I got a sore back. And, um, and so yeah. it, it, became, it, it became an endurance event. And, and so I'd, I've written a blog about it. You Google... Um, show pony and the donkey that's the how it's called you can read the whole sorry saga on on there and and i've always long realized that that wasn't really me but i've sort of been been trying to find out what it is like because as a coach from the early days of triathlon my involvement with Aaron baker and i coached her to do ironman events and worked out how to go about that um and then I coached other athletes to do long distance events. I always stuck to the shorter distance. And one stage I thought I really have to do an Ironman and know what it, see what it's really like. 
Um, and I, again, it's better wisdom. So I did the first one in Europe, uh, in Almere in Holland, my home country. And it was everything as bad as what I thought because <laughs> you think the first two thirds is quite cruisy because you can't go too hard. You have to save yourself. So you swim quite controlled, 4K, and I, I quite like swimming. And if you do it controlled, then you're on your bike. And so at about 120K on the bike, the rot starts to set in. And the problem is you know that that's going to happen. So that's why the first part of the day is not enjoyable either. And then the rot sets in, and then you improve a little bit, and then you go back down, and, and then you improve again. So it's hard yakka, and it's not like a short distance event is pain. It's painful, but it's you can cope with it because it does. It will stop soon, and then you've done your thing, and hopefully there's been a good result. But this is suffering, you know. And I was trying to get my head around why we seek this suffering, you know. When we started triathlons, when the Hawaiian Ironman started, and not, the first one was held in 1978, and there were 15 Marines, hardcore Marines, very fit guys, who sat around the table a few months before that event. And they discussed which one was the toughest event. Was it 3.8K Waikiki roof water swim, the around the Ohau around the island 100K bike ride, or was it the Honolulu Marathon? And they, they sort of got talking and were drinking more and more. And they decided, mm -hmm. so w w can it be done that we put the three events together? Whoever can do that surely is an Ironman. And they decided to pick up the challenge. So um, 15 guys turned up that day. 12 of them finished. The trophy was a, 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 a statue made of iron of a man with, with a head with a hole in its head, which I thought was very appropriate. <laughs> um, and so that was the first Ironman. And, and the next one, they had a, the next year, there was a f one female who did it and who finished. Uh, Lynn Lemaire was her name, 979. And then they had another one in 1980, with very limited participation. It was way out there, and people were shaking their heads. In 1982, um, there was a, the girl who was leading the race was called Julie Moss, and she collapsed about 400 meters from the end. Mm. And she, her legs didn't work anymore. She had soiled her pants, and she was crawling to the finish line. And it was, this was... Um, this went viral, uh, you know, it was on television, so it was all the news all over the world, how heroic she was, uh, finished this event, and suddenly the Iron Man took off. And the next year they had hundreds of people who wanted to do this event. Can you believe it? Yeah. And, and today, you know, I think it's um, more uh, 85,000 people all over the world are doing Ironman events. And those are not Marines. Those are people like you and, and me and, and just the average Joe Bloggs. And, and they want to qualify desperately because 2,000 of those 85,000 will, will get a ticket to do the Hawaiian Ironman. Now, I'd always said, I will never, ever do the Hawaiian Ironman. <laughs> I'd been helping Aaron Baker with the preparation there. I was there with her the first time she won it, 19... 87. That's probably the year that I started to coach more seriously. Before that, we had been a bit of a team trying out different training methods, and she had all the time in the world to train. Uh, I had a family and a busy practice and still did some racing and training. So I sent her out on different... Uh, I had some ideas about how to train, and when she came, came home and said, that's a really good 
training session, I put it in my own program, and when she came, when she came home half dead, I knew not to, not to do it. In the process, she got really fit. Um, she had this issue that she, uh, she, she desperately wanted to go to the States because that's where the money was, and she wanted to be a professional triathlete. She had this vision. But she had been very active in the protest movement against the Springboks in 1981. Um, and some of you might remember that there was a standoff and the country was really divided. Her mother, Mary Baker, was the chairperson of Hart, uh, Hold All Racist Tours here mm. in Christchurch. And her daughter, Erin, who was 20, was next to her on the front line throwing smoke bombs at the police. Mm. And she threw one smoke bomb too many and got arrested. And she had a conviction in her passport. She lost her job as a radiographer and moved to uh, Alice Springs in, in uh, Australia in disgrace, where she discovered triathlon, and that was in the early 80s. So we um, first met in Queensland at, in Malulubo. They had the Queensland Triathlon Championships, and all the Australian top Australians were there, a few American pros were there, and she won the women's event and I won the men's event. And so to beat the Aussies at their home soil, mm. soil is really like winning a gold medal for a Kiwi. So we became instant mates, and she came back to Christchurch, and she took this whole thing very serious and started training more than, and probably than, than any other athlete in the world. So she had a real head start with that and did really well, but she couldn't get to America, and she really desperately wanted to get to Hawaii because that's where the prestige was, the sponsorship, and everything like that. So she finally got uh, her ticket to go there with help of Russell Marshall, who was the Minister of Foreign Affairs, in 1986, um, it took her that long to get a visa approved. Uh, two months later was Hawaii, and she had been sick in the lead-up, hadn't prepared well, had to pull out. So 1987, she was going to prepare properly. And I had sort of watched this race on television, and I wonder how the hell you could prepare for this particular race and been thinking about it. So we made a plan. And um, the plan, first of all, uh, included periodization, um, where because she would train 30 hours a week, you know, and in those days that was unheard of, um, and now it's quite common. But I was really worried that she was going to dig herself a hole. So we put in every three weeks, we put in an easier week where she would only train 20 hours a week, mm -hmm. and she would feel herself coming up a little bit towards the end of of that uh, easier week, confirming that was probably the right thing to do. Uh, secondly, we had a nutrition plan because we'd worked out that nutrition for any event over two hours, in particular Ironman type of events, is the fourth discipline. Um, so, and I'm married to a dietitian, sports dietitian, so we engaged her and set a very detailed plan for Erin to follow during the uh, Ironman event. And um, thirdly, we had the bit of a plan that... Um, that we, I had watched this event on television and everybody was walking through the aid station. So on the run during a marathon, every mile, so 26 miles, every mile there was an aid station. And the word was, you need to walk through the aid stations to replenish, to drink, and to eat if you can, uh, and to recover for the next mile. So everybody walked as their lives dependent on it. To me, it didn't make sense because walking interrupts your rhythm and... Um, you don't really save that much energy at all, and it slows you down. And I said to Aaron, you need to try and run through the aid stations. And we practiced drinking 
while she was running, you know, in the rhythm with her step. Um, so those were the sort of components of, of our approach. She trained very well. She was a, a natural in the sense of being able to pace herself. She never panicked when athletes passed her. As the race evolved, and perhaps I should just talk about this for a moment, um, as it was, she was up against Paula Newby Fraser, who won the race the year before, uh, Sylvia and Patricia Pontius, who uh, were Canadian Ironman athletes, who uh, um, Sylvia had won it twice, Patricia, her sister, twin sister, had been second twice, and that was her main competition. They were experienced athletes in those conditions. Aaron, fair-headed, uh, easily sunburned, uh, training in a temperate climate. It, the race is in October, so it was she had to train through the winter. So a bit of extra gear didn't really cut it uh, to work, to stay warm, to prepare. Six weeks before the Ironman, she went to Bermuda to do a bit of a race in the heat, and she got sixth. She never got sixth in her life. She was always first of at, at, at the worst second. So when she came home, I said, what happened? She said, John, it was so hot. Um, I just couldn't feel my legs on the run. There was another thing, though, she said, and all those girls were having those bars on the bike. They were lying on. And I didn't know what was happening because I kept up with them uphill, but on the downhills and on the flats, they just rode away from me. So that were the first aero bars. And one of the Amer American girls had said to Aaron on the night before, have you, in her American accent, um, have, you, have you got those new bars? And Aaron thought those new bras, what does she mean? <laughs> she ignored it. And then she realized when they came <coughs> past her. So we so it was a good lesson in Bermuda. One, we need to respect the heat. Secondly, pacing was going to be really important. We needed to get those aero bars, which we did, and we did some trials with them. We worked out it would at least save you probably 50, 10 to 15 minutes, you know, uh, just uh, getting a bit more aerodynamic on them. So on the day. We knew that Paula Newby Fraser in particular, she had a lot of mates, uh, male friends, and they would, in the swim, form a circle around her to protect her, because they, in those days, the pros and the amateurs, uh, 2000, all started together in one group. So it was a bum fight, it really was. And, um, but so Paula had organized her cronies around her to protect her. So she had a free swim. Why? Aaron and I had considered this strategy as well, but we've soon worked out we didn't have enough mates between us <laughs> to make it work. So she was clobbered, and Paula Newby Fraser came out of the water two minutes ahead of Aaron. Normally, Aaron always beat her out of the water, so it was a sure sign things weren't going that well. I was confident that Aaron was a very strong cyclist. She would probably catch up and pass her on the bike, which she did. And she came off the bike with a two minutes advantage. Um, and I wasn't quite sure if that was enough in those hot conditions with those experienced athletes going to change, chase her. So it, it was all very tense. One of the problems that Erin had said to me, I don't know why we did it like this, but she said to me, six miles into a run, just before I get onto the lava fields, can you put a head on the road, a cap, because I might want to use it when if the sun's out just to protect myself from the sun. And... Um, right, she should have had it in the transition with her, but for some reasons, this is how it, what she decided to do. So I put the head on the road, not realizing there was just full of spectators, rows, six of spectators. And it was, she came around the corner, I saw her coming, but I couldn't uh, 
point anything out to her. And uh, there was a television cameras, and um, there was a lot of yelling and screaming. And I thought, she's going to miss the head. She doesn't see the head. And she, she ran past the head and saw it just when she passed it. So the head was there. She was running here, and she stopped dead and wanted to pick up the head. And she did, and in the <coughs> process, her hamstrings cramped. You could hear them cramping up. And she was standing there like that with the head in her hand and couldn't get up. And so she very slowly worked herself up. And suddenly it was very quiet. And then people started to encourage her. And so she very slowly came up like that. And I was right there, and there was nothing I could do. And she did one step and then another step. And while she was doing that, uh, Paula Newby Fraser came flying past, didn't even care or give her some encouragement or anything. Off she went. And so Aaron did another step and another step, and then slowly shuffled away. And I was running behind all the spectators, and I was stopped because I couldn't go any further. So I saw her disappear in the distance, shuffling away. And Sylvianne wasn't far behind her at this stage. And I thought, well, she's probably going to pass her, which Sylvianne did. And so at about a halfway point, Sylvianne had caught Paul and Newby Fraser. They were running next to each other. And they were going to do so for the next 10 miles or so. And Aaron was about a minute, minute and a half back from them. And so Aaron would run through the aid stations. And the two girls, and there's a video clip from there on YouTube, if you want to have a look at it, they would walk through every aid station next to each other, you know, like they, ha they had a truth. And they would drink. And then one would start running, and the other one would start running at the end of the aid station. And so slowly, Erin didn't run any faster, but she ran through the aid stations, and she slowly got closer and closer. And suddenly, she was not far behind them. And she, they get to this aid station, and the two girls walk. Erin comes past. Sylvianne sees her, takes off. Paul and Ubi Fraser can't run yet. She's still walking. And she lets Aaron pass. Sylvianne is gone. Aaron is about 50 meters behind. At the next aid station, what happens? Sylvianne has to walk. It was so ingrained. Aaron catches her. They run together, arm in arm, almost to the next aid station. Sylvianne had to walk, and Aaron was gone, and that was the race. Um, Anyway, I don't yeah. know how I came to that, but so so. But, yeah. <laughs> so when I saw it, I'll tell you why I came to that. When I saw that, I thought I never ever do this race, you know. And yeah. I was still about, uh, probably 15 years ago, a mate of mine, um, Neil Sharon, or tell you his name. We call him Cipollini. Um, Cipollini was a cyclist uh, who was a sprinter, Italian yeah, cyclist, right. yeah. and and. Um, one day, we were in a training camp, and Cipollini was there, or Neil was there, and he outsprinted Chris Gemmel. And Chris Gemmel was one of our elite triathletes and who was very proud of his sprints and always won every sprint. And this time, Cipollini outsmarted him. So Chris pointed at him and said, Cipollini. And since then, he was called Cipollini. He had large ears as well, like <laughs> Cipollini. Um, so he said to me, John, you're not a real triathlete till you've done the Hawaiian Ironman. You know, and I said, oh, fuck off. <laughs> and, uh, and and so and but it started to nag in my head you know sometimes you get a thought and you want it to go away and it doesn't and it grows it, i call it a crap magnet you know crap magnet and it just grows bigger and bigger so uh, so that's how i ended when i was i ended up the starting line of hawaii i met you know when i was 60 
and uh, so and and it was a suffer fest you know mm -hmm. you can buy the book and read the detail the gory detail <laughs> yeah, yeah, as well yeah, yeah. but so the suffering <clears throat> and that's when i imagine this is what you guys have a, you go to a lot of those type of um you know sensations mm -hmm. the, the, the type of suffering um and and almost embrace it you know because you say well if i suffer I'm quite happy because the others must suffer even more. You know, that's yeah. sort of the is is that the scenario? Um, yeah, I guess I'm I am aware that we're we're over time. Are we? So yeah, oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was interesting hearing the history of Iron Man. <laughs> <laughs> I got carried away. <laughs> um, there is a couple of things in John's book that he hasn't told you yet, so still buy the book. Um, <laughs> Yeah, how we? I just want to check in because I'm just we're we're not doing too bad because eh? there's no one else following. We're okay. Yeah, yeah. I think um, I guess I guess the suffering thing is um, a couple of things sort of come up. Different things that John was saying, but one thing I think is um, you know, a phrase that has often been in my mind is is uh, and you some of you would have heard it before is um, diminished by comparison. So. It's almost like whatever you do um, becomes the new measuring stick for whatever you go on to do after that. And uh, it, it is, it's, it's sort of humbling for me that John sort of looks at event tracing and sort of says, oh, you know, these, these are real adventurers out here doing the real deal. Well, I, I doesn't feel like that to me. It just feels, what I do is just feels like what I normally do. And I actually look at other people <laughs> and go far out. What they do is just completely insane. Um, so there's always another level, I guess, to whatever it is you're doing. And, um, you know, like you were saying that you often just do the short distance triathlons and then never really wanted to do, do the Ironman, the, um, the, 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 the Hawaii or the, or the, the you know, 12 hour race or whatever, whatever you want to look at it. But I think there's always those, those different scales. So I think whatever, it's not so much, I, I guess what I'm saying is it doesn't really matter what it is you're doing, the fact that you people are, are, I think people are seeking the same sort of experience. So the reason why I go and do, say, seven-day adventure race in the Pantanal, it's probably not that different to why John goes and does a Hawaiian Ironman or why some women go and do a three-hour spring challenge or why some other people go and do a 10K fun run or whatever it is. They're probably all looking for a similar thing. And, that, and, and I think a big part of it is, is that if you actually boil it down, it, it, I think it is actually, sure, there's some suffering and discomfort, but that's actually what makes you feel quite alive. And, um, and people often know that by pushing themselves, I guess, beyond the point, or especially if you can push yourself beyond a point of something that you didn't think you could do, you know, that's people gain strength and self-esteem and confidence and and um, a sense of achievement, I guess, because you actually have actually achieved something, so you can celebrate and you have had some success. So I think that, um, you know, when I look at the challenges I do with what other people do, I don't necessarily think it's like an appetite that they actually are so demented that they're actually going out and <laughs> they actually need to suffer or um, or just kind of, you know, inflict pain upon themselves or whatever, but it's probably those other rewards, I think, that they're actually going for, you know, like, is that break from monotony, the, um, the going on the adventure into the unknown, um, taking some risks. Um, you know, I think a lot of it is just, is, is just literally, you know, I, this is what, how I feel, is that a lot of my adventure exploits are just sort of breaking any sort of shackle that might try and sort of trap me into a normal life. I mean, <laughs> one of the things I fear the most is being normal. And so when people say to me, you're crazy, I'm like going, well, that, that's what I'm kind of trying to achieve, really. Because if someone came up to me saying, mate, I look at the stuff you do and you are normal. I'd be like, 
Yeah, <laughs> where have I gone wrong? Sorry. Mm. Sure. Did everyone hear that question? Um, yeah, and I don't think it'll be any different to, I mean, everyone will probably have those mantras at challenging times. So I, th I think for me, it probably, I mean, John could answer the same question, I think. I don't think, I know for me that, um, because I do all sorts of events, you know, I try, and at certain times in my training, I'll try and race as much as I can. If there's a race on, I'll be on the start line. And so it might be a 3K cross-country race. And I'll probably possibly be asked the challenging questions during that in terms of pushing on and what I want to do is kind of slow down or stop or, you know, why, why, what, what made you think this was a good idea, whatever it is. But there's different, there is different tools that you use. And I guess, you know, your question being in terms of the dark places in event racing, they can be pretty dark places um, just because, because they can last for so long, like the, 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 doubt, the lows can last for quite some days, you know, or, um, you know, if, you, if you've got an injury or discomfort or something can be. But I guess the things that go through my mind is, um, there's a few things, a few mind games that go on. I've done this race to sport for a long time now, so I sort of know the, know the things. One is, is that, um, why did you think, what, 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 you know, your negative thoughts are, well, what am I doing? What are you doing here? I mean, you know that this is part of the sport. Why did you sign back up again? Because the last race and the race before that, you said you'd never do this again. So you play that little mind game, and then you kind of finally come to some sort of acceptance with yourself that, well, you did choose to be here, and these are the reasons why. So then you go, okay, 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 I'm cool about being here. But I think, um, I think there's a couple of things for me is that, and that, that the times is that I, I generally know that if I'm suffering or my team is suffering, that uh, John sort of alluded to it just before, that, um, that we actually probably, this is probably the, the I guess, the, um, the GST end of the race or the business end. This is where the race is. So if we push, if we can actually just manage through, manage this, we'll probably win the race. Um, so that's, that's quite motivating because you kind of know that this is, this, okay, the going's got tough, but, you know, we're engaged and we're going to push through this. We also know that if we're hurting, our competitors are hurting too. So then it does become, um, you know, there's that quote you would have heard before, you know, they who suffer most wins. And it does become a bit of that, whereas almost who can just kind of handle the discomfort for the longest will probably emerge victorious. So there's kind of those, from a competitive point of view, there's that. But the, I think for me personally too is that there's just a, um, you know, you're, I'm in a team and I've made a commitment to be in the team and you just want to be the best teammate you can be. And I think you can draw a lot of motivation from that. Just going, well, you know, my teammates are kind of relying on me um, to pull through this. So I'm just going to do everything I possibly can to stay positive and just do everything I can to kind of push through. So, yeah, it can be different, a number of different things. So. My, I, I'm different from you. <clears throat> my, my mind take, takes on a life on its own when I'm in those long-distance dark places. And I, I gradually go, I slowly go bonkers, to be honest. And if you read the blog from the bike race, you, you can, that's the proof of it. Um, and for the particular Hawaiian Ironman, when I trained for it, and you, even during Ironman, I was into poetry. So I wrote poems, you know, and that got me through the... That got me through to the end. Um, I, I can the, the poems have been edited out of the book, um, <laughs> so they're, they're probably pretty crap. But I'll, I'll, if we had time, I would happily recite them. <laughs> <laughs> we can answer more questions out at the signing. Yeah. We'll, be, we'll be out. We'll be out at the signing. Yep. Yep. Come and see. Thank us. you, guys. Thank you. Thank you.